0: The House and Senate will come back Tuesday. The Senate will stay in session through Thursday, while the House will stay in through Friday. This week in the House, they'll return Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30pm. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up three bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and for the balance of the week, the House will consider HR2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023 and H.R. 1163, the Protecting Taxpayers and Victims of Unemployment Fraud Act. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to confirm Anthony DeVos Johnstone to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Michael Farbiars and Robert Kirsch, both to be U.S. District Judges for the District of New Jersey. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Aurelia Eleta Merchant to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Wesley L. Sue to be U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. Then the Senate voted to pass H.J. Res. 39, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of Commerce relating to procedures covering suspension of liquidation, duties, and estimated duties in accord with Presidential Proclamation 10414. This is a significant CRA resolution of disapproval against a Biden administration action. A June 2022 emergency proclamation allows imports of Chinese solar products with no additional tariffs for two years guaranteeing unfair competition for American solar panel manufacturers. Congressman Bill Posey's H.J. Res. 39 would block this rule from going into effect and would thereby reinstate tariffs on solar panel imports. The resolution passed the House by a vote of 221 to 202, with 12 Democrats crossing party lines. It also passed the Senate with a bipartisan vote of 56 to 41. Then the Senate took up SJ Res 9, another CRA resolution of disapproval. This one aimed at disapproving the rules submitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service relating to endangered and threatened wildlife and plants, the lesser prairie chicken, threatened status with Section 4D rule for the northern distinct population segment, and endangered status for the southern distinct population segment. That resolution passed by a vote of 50 to 48. Then the Senate voted to confirm the nomination of Wesley L. Sue to be the U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. And then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Lashonda A. Hunt to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Illinois. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Colleen Joy Shogan to be the Archivist of the United States and Greta Rao Gupta to be Ambassador-at-Large for Global Women's Issues. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of El Feliz Gorordo to be U.S. alternate, Alternate Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development for a term of two years. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we may see action on the nomination of Glenna Wright Gallo to be Assistant Secretary for Special Education and Rehabilitation Services at the Department of Education. Walensky resigns. On Friday, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, announced that she would be vacating her position on June 30. Reasonable people everywhere rejoiced. Dr. Walensky's tenure was marked by confusing and contradictory messaging. She was frequently on a different page than the one Dr. Fauci or Surgeon General Vivek Murthy were on and she seemed never to be on the same page as the majority of the reasonable people of the United States. Now to unions and railways. In the wake of the Norfolk Southern Railway derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, Ohio's two U.S. Senators, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, introduced the Railway Safety Act, which has several reasonable positions in it. Unfortunately, it also has a bad provision in it in its minimum crew size standard. Were the proposal to become law, all freight trains would be required to have a minimum of two people on the crew at all times, including a certified conductor and an engineer. This would vastly increase costs for mid sized railways, and for no good reason. It would do little to make railways safer. In fact, there's no evidence that two-man crews make trains safer. Just ask Norfolk Southern. The train that derailed in East Palestine had a three-man crew, and yet still found a way to derail despite that. Sherrod Brown is a Democrat who's up for re-election next year, so it's understandable why he'd want to do a favor for unions. But J.D. Vance is a Republican who just got elected to the U.S. Senate and is now serving the first year of his first term, which means he doesn't stand for reelection for another five years, so there's no telling what advantage he gets other than to do a favor for a union. Senate Majority Leader Schumer is making this a top priority this week and working with the Commerce Committee to speed up progress on the bill. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. Two weeks ago, we learned that former CIA acting director Michael Morell had testified to a congressional committee that he had written the fabled October 2020 letter signed by 51 former intelligence community professionals declaring that the Hunter Biden laptop story had, quote, all the earmarks of a Russian information operation, end quote, as the result of a conversation he'd had with then-Biden campaign aide Antony Blinken, who now serves as the U.S. Secretary of State. Blinken says otherwise. Appearing on Fox News last Monday, interviewed by correspondent Benjamin Hall, Blinken said, quote, With regard to that letter, I didn't. it wasn't my idea, didn't ask for it, didn't solicit it. And I think that the testimony that the former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, put forward confirms that end quote. The testimony of Morell, of course, confirms exactly the opposite. Meanwhile, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky said yesterday that the Department of Justice should hold off indicting Hunter Biden until after Wednesday of this week, because on Wednesday, Comer plans to make public a report with all sorts of evidence he says he has showing a pay-to-play bribery scheme involving Joe Biden, and what Comer says are many more countries than previously known. Quote, more and more evidence is pointing towards Joe Biden, Comer said. Obviously, Joe Biden was involved in all this despite the fact that he lied to the American people, despite the fact that his press secretary continues to lie about it, end quote. Comer said the report he will release later this week will show that the Biden family received monies from many more countries than previously known, and that the number of Biden family members who benefited from the monies is much larger than previously known. Comer's weekend revelations follow news he released last week, claiming that an FBI whistleblower has told Comer and others that the FBI has a document from the summer of 2020 alleging a pay-to-play bribery scheme in which Joe Biden traded policy favors for money. Stay tuned. Now to illegal immigration. It's taken the House GOP leadership months longer than they had originally anticipated. They had originally planned to have this bill on the House floor within two weeks of launching the 117th Congress, but GOP leaders now believe they've lined up all their ducks in a row to pass a major border security and immigration bill. H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, will come to the House floor this week. The bill is actually a combination of two bills, H.R. 2640, the Border Security and Enforcement Act of 2023, which came out of the Judiciary Committee, and H.R. 2794, the Border Reinforcement Act of 2023, which came out of the Homeland Security Committee. Here's the bullet point take on what's in the two bills, and if you want to read a fuller analysis you'll have to read this week's Washington Report online because even the bullet point take is seven pages long. So I'm going to be cutting here and there. Let's start with H.R. 2640, the Border Security and Enforcement Act of 2023. Title I is Asylum Reform and Border Protection. The background Unlike the European Union, the United States does not have a safe third country policy that prevents asylum shopping, so applicants for asylum in the United States can travel through multiple countries where they could have sought protection before they reach their preferred destination, the United States. The current low threshold for asylum applicants to claim a credible fear of persecution has created massive backlogs in our immigration courts. When combined with catch and release policies, these backlogs ensure that fraudulent asylum applicants can live and work in the United States for years before finally being denied asylum. From 2014 to 2019, 83% of those who claimed a fear of persecution were found to have a credible fear and were referred to an immigration judge, but only 15% of the asylum cases completed during that period were granted asylum. So, What Title I does, it denies asylum eligibility for aliens who entered or attempted to enter the United States after transiting through at least one country outside of their country of nationality or their last habitual residence, unless the aliens can show they applied for and were denied asylum in one of those countries, they were under 18, or a victim of a severe form of trafficking or slavery, and was unable to apply in each transited country, or They transited only through countries that are not parties to the 1951 or 1967 United Nations Protocols on Refugees or the United Nations Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment of Punishment. It raises the standard of proof for credible fear to more likely than not from significant possibility and allows asylum officers to assess the alien's credibility. It limits asylum to those arriving in the U.S. at ports of entry or brought into the U.S. after being interdicted in international or U.S. waters. It makes ineligible for asylum any alien who has participated in persecution, who has been convicted of any felony or certain misdemeanors, or is otherwise deemed a security concern. It bars granting asylum if the alien could avoid persecution by resettling in a different part of the alien's country of nationality, or if the alien was firmly resettled in another country prior to arriving in the United States. It defines firmly resettled to cover cases where the alien or the alien minor's parent could receive a permanent or indefinitely renewable immigration status. The alien lived without persecution or torture for one year or more or the alien is claiming a fear of persecution in a country other than the alien's country of citizenship. It tightens the asylum process to limit claims based on non-state activity. It mandates a 180-day waiting period before an asylum applicant can apply for an Employment Authorization Document, that's an EAD, and limits such EADs to renewable six-month periods it prohibits a determination that an alien is a member of a particular social group when that group is based on generalized violence, a high crime rate in the country of origin, or past or present criminal activity or gang or terrorist group membership, among others. It clarifies that persecution does not include generalized harm or violence in a country, treatment the U.S. regards as unfair, unjust, unlawful, or unconstitutional, intermittent harassment, threats from unidentified entities without effort to carry them out, or non-severe economic harm or property damage. It creates a notice which warns asylum applicants that frivolous asylum claims will result in a permanent bar in immigration benefits, and it establishes expedited asylum procedures for Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. That's Title I. Title II, the Border Safety and Migrant Protection The background is the Trump administration successfully deterred illegal immigration and fraudulent asylum claims by requiring asylum applicants to wait in Mexico for their asylum applications to be adjudicated. The official name of the Trump remain in Mexico policy was the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP. The Biden administration dismantled the MPP program and either released illegal aliens into the United States, that is catch and release, or granted parole into the United States. The parole designation allowed them to apply immediately for an Employment Authorization Document, the EAD. While illegal aliens who are released into the country with a notice to appear, or a notice to report, are not entitled to apply for EADs until after they have filed applications for asylum. Now, what Title II does, It makes illegal aliens ineligible for parole or release from custody other than to be returned to their home country or returned to a contiguous country to pursue an asylum claim. And it mandates that DHS must return an illegal alien to a contiguous country, that is the MPP, to await adjudication adjudication or remove the alien if DHS is unable to detain the alien during the adjudication or return the alien to his or her home country. It requires suspension of entry for aliens when DHS cannot comply with detain, return, or removal of aliens. It provides state attorneys general a cause of action to seek injunctive relief from DHS for failure to follow the detain, return, remove, or suspension requirements. Title three is Ensuring United Families at the Border. Here's the background. The Flores Settlement Agreement, initially agreed upon in 1997, was modified in in 2015 by Judge Dolly Gee to apply to accompanied as well as unaccompanied minors. This ruling was upheld by the Ninth Circuit after an appeal by the Obama administration. The effect of this ruling was essentially to bar family unit detention. This led to an exponential increase in family unit illegal immigration. In 2018, family units accounted for roughly 161,000 apprehensions, and after COVID, roughly 1 million apprehensions in FY21 and FY22 combined. So, what Title III does, it removes the legal presumption that accompanied minors apprehended at the border cannot be detained. It requires that accompanied minors only be released to parents or legal guardians who are lawfully present in the United States. It requires detention of parents with their alien child. It includes a sense of Congress that these amendments satisfy the modifications of Flores made in 2015 with regards to accompanied minors in custody and it bars states from requiring detention facilities for family units to be licensed independently by a state to operate. Now, Title Four, Protection of Children. Background. Under current law, unaccompanied alien children, that is UACs, from contiguous countries are treated differently than UACs from non-contiguous countries. While UACs from contiguous countries may be returned immediately, those from non-contiguous countries are required to be transferred to the Department of Health and Human Services, that is HHS, within 72 hours after they're encountered. HHS is required to hold the UACs in the least restrictive setting, ensure access to legal counsel, and locate a sponsor in the United States. These procedural protections for UACs from non-contiguous countries led families to put their children in the hands of the cartels to escort them to the U.S. border, where they could turn themselves into border patrol. UAC apprehensions, which numbered 16,067 in FY 2011, reached what was a record 68,541 in FY 2014. In FY 2021, a record 146,925 were apprehended, only for that record to be broken in FY 2022 when 152,075 were apprehended. For the current fiscal year to date, 70,016 have been apprehended before the anticipated surge in numbers after the end of Title 42 later this week. So what Title IV does. It treats all UACs the same, regardless of national origin, so that all UACs who are not trafficking victims and who are not in fear of returning to their home country may be returned promptly to be reunited with their families. It requires HHS to obtain relevant information for all sponsors of UACs, including the immigration status of the sponsor. And it requires DHS to initiate removal proceedings on sponsors without lawful status. And it restricts eligibility for special immigrant juvenile, that is SIJ, status to alien minors who cannot be reunified with one parent or legal guardian who is not abusive. Title V, Visa Overstays Penalties. Here's the background. Visa overstays are a significant portion of the illegal immigrant population in the United States and have been trending higher in recent years. In 2016, the Center for Migration Studies estimated that 62% of those here unlawfully had overstayed a visa. Pew Research has said from 2007 to 2017, the share of newly arrived unauthorized immigrants, those in the U.S. five years or less, from regions other than Central America and Mexico, the vast majority of whom are overstays, increased from 37% to 63%. So, what Title V does? It increases the civil penalty for illegal entry and attempts to enter illegally from between $50 and $250 to between $500 and $1,000, It applies the same civil and criminal penalties for illegal entry to temporary non-immigrants who overstay their visa. Currently, visa overstays are not subject to such penalties. Title VI, Immigration Parole Reform. Here's the background. Congress granted the executive branch the power to parole individual aliens only on a case-by-case basis, when the case presented urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit on a temporary basis. The executive branch has interpreted this power as providing the ability to grant parole categorically to large classes of aliens where the executive makes generalized determinations of parole for the class being a broad, significant public benefit or presenting an urgent humanitarian reason. These parole grants include employment authorization document eligibility for grantees, As a result of this interpretation, the executive branch has created a myriad of parole programs, including the Haitian Family Reunification Program, the Cuban Family Reunification Program, the Central American Minor Refugee Parole Program, and Immigrant Military Members and Veterans Initiative, among others. The Biden administration currently is importing 30,000 parolees per month from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba in an effort to deter their illegal entry at the border. So, what Title VI does? It strictly limits parole to a case-by-case basis by prohibiting class-wide eligibility criteria. It allows parole for certain spouses and children of active duty members of the U.S. Armed Forces. It provides parole to residents of Cuba pursuant to the 1994 U.S.-Cuba Joint Communique on Migration. It allows parole eligibility for aliens returned to Mexico pending their removal proceedings solely for the purpose of travel to and from those removal proceedings in the United States. It bars employment authorization for parolees except for the spouses or children of active duty members of the armed forces and nationals from Cuba. It creates a cause of action for individuals, states, and localities to bring civil action for violating the provisions of this act. Title Seven, the legal workforce. Here's the background. The primary magnet for illegal immigration is the potential to work in the United States. eVerify is a free, fast, and accurate internet-based service that allows employers to verify the work authorization of new hires in minutes by entering the information already required on the I-9 form. E-Verify does not create any additional databases. Instead, it simply pings, first, the Social Security Administration's database, and second, if there is no match in the SSA database, the Department of Homeland Security's database on aliens. So, what Title VII does? It permanently authorizes E-Verify. It requires all employers to screen all new hires through E-Verify within three years with a gradual phase-in based on business size with agricultural employers having the last compliance date. It increases penalties for knowingly hiring illegal aliens. It requires the Social Security Administration to identify compromised social security numbers, that is SSNs, and block their use until contact is established with the legitimate holder of that SSN in order to prevent further identity theft or misuse. It allows parents to lock the SSNs of their children to prevent fraudulent use of minors' numbers. Individuals already can lock their own SSN. Now to H.R. 2794, the Border Reinforcement Act of 2023. It's a somewhat smaller piece of legislation. This bill requires the resumption of border wall construction, using funds that were previously appropriated and materials that were previously acquired. It amends the Secure Fence Act to explicitly require physical barriers along at least 900 miles of the border and expedite procedures for construction. It authorizes retention bonuses for Border Patrol and requires Customs and Border Protection to increase to not fewer than 22,000 Border Patrol agents. It requires the Department of Homeland Security, that is DHS, to issue grants under Operation Stone Garden to local law enforcement in border states to assist in border security and explain denials of grant requests to Congress. It requires the CBP to fly no fewer than 110,000 annual flight hours. It requires DHS to update various technologies and submit improved strategies and plans related to border security. It defunds DHS processing of aliens between points of entry and DHS funded non-governmental NGOs, I'm sorry, non-governmental organization, that is NGOs that facilitate unlawful entry, human trafficking and smuggling, drug trafficking and smuggling, or provide or facilitate the provision of transportation, lodging, or immigration legal services to inadmissible aliens who enter the United States after the date of the enactment. It requires CBP to publish a monthly public report, including detailed encounters broken down by nationality and criminal and terrorist status, known gotaways, drug seizures, deceased aliens, and other statistics collected by CBP that are not currently public. It prohibits COVID-19 vaccine mandates for DHS employees and reinstates those fired as a result of previous COVID-19 vaccine requirements. That bill will see action on the floor this week. They will likely begin debate on Wednesday, and they are trying to have the vote on Thursday, which is May 11th, which is the same day that Title 42 will be lifted. Now to the debt ceiling. The clock is ticking, and we finally have some movement on negotiations over legislation to raise the debt ceiling. Let me reset things to catch you up. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have taken the position that Republicans who control the House of Representatives should vote to raise the debt ceiling without requiring any associated fiscal reforms. In the view of the Democrats, lifting the debt ceiling should be a routine thing, a one-off, and shouldn't be tied to anything else. Republicans think this is hogwash. Republicans in the House and in the Senate think the need to raise the debt ceiling offers a regular chance to address Washington's reckless spending. For months, Biden and Schumer refused to budge, insisting that neither would support tying an increase in the debt ceiling to any fiscal reforms. For months, Republicans in the House and in the Senate said they would not allow the debt ceiling to be increased without accompanying fiscal reforms. The Democrats did not believe House Speaker Kevin McCarthy would be able to pass a bill through the House. They believed he would fail in his attempt to move a bill with nothing but Republican votes and that he would be forced to watch in horror as a majority composed of all Democrats and just a handful of squishy Republicans worked to pass a bill to increase the debt ceiling without any spending cuts. That plan blew up when McCarthy showed he was able to pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling even as it mandates spending cuts on a three-to-one basis. That is, for every dollar it increases the debt ceiling, it cuts spending by three dollars. The passage of that bill gives McCarthy chips with which to sit at the table. The ball is now in Biden's court. Several days after McCarthy succeeded in passing the debt ceiling bill, Biden invited McCarthy and Schumer, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, and House Democrat Leader Hakeem Jeffries to come to the White House Tuesday, tomorrow, to discuss raising the debt ceiling. Democrats are still trying to break off moderate Republicans so they can raise the debt ceiling without having to deal with McCarthy. House Minority Leader Jeffries revealed early last week that House Democrats had introduced a bill months ago that could serve as the vehicle for a discharge petition that would generate signatures from all 213 Democrats and, if possible, five House Republicans. But no House Republicans appeared interested in signing on. And on the Senate side, Republicans led by Utah Senator Mike Lee signed a letter, 43 of them, meaning that only six Republicans failed to sign, saying they would not vote for an increase in the debt ceiling without spending cuts. The Washington Post's fact checker blew up Biden's false debt ceiling talking points. In a piece published May 3rd, the Post reported, quote, Within 15 years of the debt ceiling being established in 1939, members of Congress began to use the must-pass debt ceiling increase as leverage to force concessions from the executive branch, according to a 1993 study of the politics of the debt limit. In 1953, Republicans blocked an increase requested by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, also a Republican. The next year, with Democrats in control of the Senate, Harry F. Byrd of Virginia, who then chaired the Senate Finance Committee, was concerned that Eisenhower's goal of building a national highway system would add to the debt accumulated during World War II. Eisenhower asserted that he had moved promptly and vigorously to cut spending, but still needed the debt limit raised to pay outstanding bills. Byrd was not satisfied. He demanded more cuts in exchange for a scaled-back debt limit increase that Eisenhower finally obtained from Congress. In the 1970s, lawmakers, primarily Democrats, began to offer amendments to the debt ceiling that had little to do with government finances, including suspending U.S. bombing in Cambodia or bolstering Social Security, the study said. Continuing with the Washington Post, a pattern soon developed with lawmakers in each party generally supporting a debt ceiling increase only if the president was from the same party. In 2006, Senator Barack Obama gave a speech on the Senate floor saying he would refuse to approve a debt limit increase requested by a Republican president, George W. Bush, without a plan to reduce the budget deficit. End quote. Moreover, seven of the last ten debt limit increases, including, importantly, all three that occurred during the Trump administration were enacted as part of larger fiscal legislation and were not standalone increases, as the White House falsely claims. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that because of unexpectedly low revenues flowing into the government, The so-called X that is the date beyond which Treasury will lose its magical ability to juggle funds and continue paying bills without an increase in the debt ceiling, has moved up to June 1. If she is to be believed, that means the clock is really ticking. And that's our Washington Report for this week.